Welcome to the Thrive in the Workplace podcast brought to you by The Wellness Theory in partnership with B1G1 Business for Good. This podcast is all about uplifting organisations to thrive when it comes to all things workplace wellbeing. From organisational culture, the most effective wellness campaigns you can imagine and integrating social good, you will find insights, inspiration and information that supports leaders at all levels to implement best practices to improve engagement, performance and vitality within the workforce. We believe that workplaces can and should be healthy and sustainable for both the workforce, the bottom line and the community. And in this podcast, we'll show you how. And just so you know, for every listen this podcast gets, we'll be donating to a life-saving project aligned with the UN 2030 Global Goals. So thank you for being here and continuing the ripple effect. Without further ado, join us to thrive in the workplace and become a force for good in the world. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Charlotte Stebbing-Mills, and today I'm joined by Ryan Hopkins, who is on a mission to engage one billion people in the betterment of well-being. Ryan has held a number of pioneering roles, including Future of Wellbeing leader at Deloitte, and today he is the Chief Impact Officer at Jack, which is a mental health platform. He is a top voice on LinkedIn for work-life balance, TEDx speaker, host of the Audacious Goals Club, and author of 52 Weeks of Wellbeing which is a no-nonsense guide to a fulfilling work life which comes out in January 2024. Ryan's work has positively influenced the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and he shares his personal story of bulimia, depression, anxiety openly which helps so many people and has reached over 10 million people on social media. Ryan I'm thrilled to have you here today to talk about all things well-being. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Very well, very well, thank you. I've been super excited about this conversation in particular because you, you think about well-being in such a different way to, I think, the majority. So let's kick straight in with what is well-being and why is it so important to you? So classic uh, former consultant answer, it depends. So are you talking about an individual or an organisation because it's diametrically different? I'll talk about why it's important and then we can get into it, yeah? You can hear me both, yeah. Okay, cool. So like anyone who works in this space, I've been through a few things. I don't think you get into this space without having been through something yourself. Met someone yet, if you point them out to me, that'd be great. I'd love to meet them. <laughs> but I, in another life, I was trained to be an electrician when I had an uh, accident and broke my leg and I was incapacitated for about a year. Lost my job, funding, had no future. I was trained to be an electrician at the time. And then, um, yeah, they spiraled into quite a deep depression and basically planned to take my life at that time. Come out of that, started to lose the weight, but developed some unhealthy coping mechanisms to do so and developed bulimia, which I had on and off for about eight years. On and off like severe periods of anxiety, not being able to leave the house and stuff. And finally got a degree at a ripe old age and uh, got into like the Deloitte grad scheme. That was like Robert De Niro, like the oldest graduate, like walking into the Google office, like trying to be hip and cool. <laughs> and um, I started to share my story, like one piece at a time. I tell it really flippantly now, cause, but it's difficult to get into it. I know we've got lots to cover, but as I'm not plastered over the fact that it wasn't incredibly difficult for a horrendous amount of time, but I now started to share that. And I found that at each event, there were a few more people just like me and started to unlock pieces of it. And then I was like, hang about, 
I can actually do something to create work that's better for people. And I was working in digital transformation and started to put two and two together and I had to leave Deloitte to go and do it full time and took on some really cool roles and did some amazing things and then come back. And then I've created the business that we've taken around the world to help companies and organizations look after their people because this gets me to the well-being point. I knew I was going to come around some way, shape or form. So the interesting thing is well-being has arisen as this priority of most companies because during the pandemic, prior it was side of desk, we did the odd thing. Now it's quite visible and understood and something that has to be done. We put on events and applications and EAPs and support. But the stats show that things are straight up getting worse. I think it's because it's not an organization's responsibility to improve happiness, but it is their responsibility not to worsen it. And we continue to look at the person to fix themselves as opposed to creating the environment where they can thrive in the first place. So we plaster over symptoms of a problem rather than addressing the stresses. And I'm trying to flip that switch. So that's organizational. For an individual, it's simply being able to prioritize what it is that makes you your best self. And that encompasses a whole host of things. Mm. I don't want to gloss over what you shared there about your own personal journey into this, because I think it's so important that more and more people continue to speak up about the things that they've experienced and in not in a worries me kind of way but in the way of allowing other people like the opportunity to reflect perhaps on their own journey and it's okay to share those experiences because it seems to be such a taboo subject still to talk about some of the challenges that we face and for you I know obviously being male you know it's it's a big stigma more so attached to your gender than any other and it's something that is being you know cited in every study you can see the stats don't lie you know suicide is getting worse three quarters three quarters of suicides are men which is just insane absolutely insane and I think it's something that is not we, we cannot gloss over it and you clearly have being able to find your find your path or find your way to come back from that and that is no easy feat so what's been what's helped you on your journey back to well-being for you personally yeah I always I once whenever I gloss over the story I always wish I hadn't it's almost like I want to get to what I want to talk about and try and avoid it and I get it yeah that's it it's difficult I still work out how to tell it because it feels like I'm dropping a lot of stuff on people and I want to leave people better. But I think it helps to set context as well. But I'm trying to, I'm still trying to work it out. We all do, right? Every day is a school day. I um, had the opportunity in April to speak at TEDx Shoreditch. It was amazing. Um, and it was like a straight up dream for so many years. It's like, that's what I'm going to do. And I started putting out content and started to share openly over four years and eventually led to the stage. I practiced so much for that talk. I did 34 practice talks in 28 days. I was shitting myself. Like, <laughs> I just went so much. Oh, like, I loved it. Like, I loved it. But I was so nervous. And I thought, I'm going to give this the best version of myself. But what I did was I talked myself out of my story. So I removed the emotion and the feel of it. My mum was my last person I practiced with. She was there for all of it. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here now. Because she was the only person that I could speak to. She's the first person I told about my bulimia. She was the person who I spoke to when I was really thinking about how I ended things. And if it wasn't for her, the thought of letting her down, I wouldn't be here now. Yeah. You could have given me the world's best app or solution at the time, but I wouldn't have wanted it or needed it. I just needed the love from the person I care about the most in this world. Mm. 
and the it's, it's funny the story you you t you talk about these things like there's someone else but it's still difficult to go back into that headspace and it, at first i spoke about a tiny bit about the depression because i felt that was at least taboo then about the anxiety but not the thought that i wanted to wet myself when i whenever i left the front door then i spoke about the suicidal ideation and then about the bulimia and then about other things i'm still working out how to tell my stories it's not about going from zero to 100 laying all your bones bare because it's incredibly painful and difficult each time you dig back into it and but you find in certain groups you're just able to share a little piece of who you are and you realize then that there are 10 or 100 people just like you yeah. that you're not that weird that there's nothing wrong with you and there's definitely nothing wrong with me and it's actually bloody normal to be a bit different all of us are yeah. so to show this like exterior of the brave man i was a bouncer i used to i pulled a double decker bus on the rope like i weighed 107 kilos and i was so anxious that i was standing on the door of this club and i thought i was going to piss myself and i had to wear i even ended up wearing an adult diaper at some point because i was so scared it was going to happen i was so nervous it never happened yeah but i, I couldn't tell anyone because i was more dangerously like mortified about it. i thought i'm a freak but i'm not and you learn that as you tell a tiny piece of your story at a time, but don't rush yourself into it. Don't force yourself into exposing everything because it will hurt and it will take time to process again. But there'll be little groups who are like, I can speak to you. I'm going to tell you this little bit. And you're like, ah, I was okay. Maybe I'm not that weird. Yeah, exactly. And, the, you know, you, you'll find those little groups along the way and they're all presented to you. I think for that for that very reason right so that you can just open up share that a little bit more it's healing for everybody involved one thing that's really interesting what you said is like you could have we could have given you an app or we could have given you something else like the best solution in the world but you wasn't in the headspace to receive it at that time Tell not, us not an intentional choice of words either <laughs> <laughs> But it, it, the reality is, like, that's what's happening when we look at, at organisational well-being. That, and that's honestly what the way in which personal development and some kind of healing strategies are moving towards now. It's more technology-based, app-based. Um, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. And they can absolutely no. complement and help somebody on their journey. But it's almost like we're looking at those things as a, as a solution. And we're almost taking that human element out of it. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Like the biggest cause of stress in the workplace, this is not going to shock you or anyone that's listening, is workload. Seventy-eight percent of us. Yeah. So what we do to fix a burgeoning workload is give people more to do. Mm. You can't meditate your way out of a fourteen-hour day. You straight up, you cannot. Yeah. So until you have space, the best solutions in the world will exacerbate issues because now that's just one more thing that you cannot do. You piece of shit. <laughs> Like, what is wrong with you? Why are you not doing this? And you question yourself, like, why am I not making space for these things that I should be doing? And now we're acutely aware we have an issue that we're anxious about the work, that we have mounting emails and every time it comes in, most of us don't even breathe when we're looking at our screen. Have you heard of email apnea? Email Linda apnea? Stone? No. Email it's apnea, it's a thing, yeah, yeah. It's about 85% of us actively hold our breath when we're looking at the screen, so we don't put like fully breathe. Yeah. So we are literally suffocating ourselves while we work. And to continue to address these issues, we give people more to do without creating the space, the flexibility, the psychological safety to actually start to do the things. But you can take the horse to well-being water, but you cannot make it drink. 
And when I was at my deepest, lowest point, I just needed some love from my mum and time. When someone is good and ready, they will use those solutions. And I think a lot of them are amazing. There's absolutely space for these things. But the first point of call is to create the space for some reflection or to even consider using them. And often we come in with these end to end solutions. Just consider this example. You wouldn't, I've never, I haven't met a builder yet, big sweeping generalization that uses a meditation app, but what they do use, they do go for a cup of tea each day and sit on the edge of a brick wall and have a chat. Yeah. So it's about considering the different people and how they're going to interact with this stuff. And there are now 350,000 health apps on the app store. Wow. 4% have got any medical research. So there's a lot of people intending, no one gets into this space yeah. to negatively affect subjective well-being, but by misunderstanding what the needs are of the people within the business and trying to plaster over a larger problem, you're potentially making things worse. Yeah, exactly. You, I heard you say recently on a talk that you did that there's a massive conflict between the perception of well-being in the workplace from a senior exec and an employee standpoint. I think it was like 75% of senior execs think that it's improved well-being. Yeah, that's and actually 75% of employees said it stayed the same or got worse. That's exactly it. And you know why that is? Because well-being is, has been, it's, it's the fastest growing thing along with DNI inside of an organization with regards to a quasi function. And it's absolutely a priority, but it's a priority to be seen to be doing the right things. Only one to 2% of companies actually use any organizational data, such as attrition, engagement data, absenteeism, work week data, use holiday days to measure the effectiveness of their wellbeing efforts. So I was at a round table yesterday um, and we were to be discussing with uh, quite a few of the leaders there and I said, everyone uses surveys and focus groups. Great, qualitative feedback. However, would you go to the sales function and say, how are you getting on this month? They go, yeah, we got some nice statements from a survey we sent recently. Well, what are the figures? We don't know. What about you marketing? Oh, we had a focus group and we asked a few people. Yeah. What's the reach? Not sure. So to really bring this forwards and make it an absolute business priority of the C-suite who have a hundred things going on at the moment, we have to take a quantified approach. We have to start to say, okay, so this is the voluntary attrition. This is the rationale for the people leaving. You've now got a cost of the well-being costs of people exiting. And that's not even considering the people that stay inside the business and the quiet quitters, so-called, or lazy girl jobs and all these things that we're seeing pop up on socials. Attrition is actually lower this year for most organizations, people I've been discussing. I said, they're like, oh, that's good, no? I said, well, what's your engagement rate? And you have the global engagement rate at work, according to Gallup, is 26% engaged. In the UK, it's even worse, it's 18%. So now you've got masses of people who are switching on, switching off, doing the bare minimum, yep. and then other people that are walking out the door. If you start to understand that cost, that becomes a priority. Until that happens, this is just something where we're going to put on a few events, provide a few benefits, bikes went on as a one-off events, and it will remain that way. Mm. But to fundamentally make work that is good for people, you have to start to do that measurement. And a lot of us, me included, in former roles would have come up very short, and our impact would have been limited as nice as it is and as good as it feels yeah. and everyone works in this field with full energy because they want to help but we would find out that a lot of these things could be potentially making things worse and not having any impacts where we want to have it yeah so we need to take it forwards and include the it function because we all most of us are interfacing through laptops yeah. i haven't seen any organization that includes an it team 
mm. in a well-being function but that would have the biggest impact on people yeah you what you've just described there is what i know you refer to as like well-being 1.0 right it's the way that we used to do things or it's the world well, to be honest it's the way that companies are just starting to do exactly well. and so, that's fine that's absolutely yeah. fine starting point right definitely it has to be done and they're, they're not knocking anyone because increased awareness is amazing and that's enabled me to come forward and talk about these things it's why you do what you do and it's why we're able to have these conversations so not knocking it but to move forward and actually start to shift yeah. away from awareness and a lot away from awareness with increased awareness and improved like work and ability to do what people need to be their best selves then we need to start to shift the dial a little bit yeah definitely and you always speak about it like obviously that 1.0 version being a bit more reactive than proactive and well-being 2.0 as you call it is like the way forward right that's the way in which we're going to start to move the needle and start to improve some of the statistics we're seeing when it comes to actual health and, and wellness and well-being it's an absolute challenge right and there's a lot of things that an organization can't control and i think perhaps with the best well and intent in the world, a lot of us have overstepped and we're trying to improve happiness outside of work as admirable as that is, but is it an organization's responsibility to do that? As I said, if we just focus on creating the work that gives the optimum agency to focus on how they work, to prioritize the things they need to be their best self, do we need to do anything else? Yeah. That's the question. And actually it would often require doing a bit less. But to be seen to be doing less would be questioned by the people in the business and the exec unless we've done the measurement. So after often less is more, and especially from a wellbeing perspective, like what would you rather, five, ten minutes in between meetings or another webinar today? Are you back to back? I know what I would prefer. Yeah. And we're not even asking those questions, I don't think, across the board. But no. we, we, we say, we call it like the nicer. We love an acronym, don't we? So it's the needs, the interests, concerns, the expectations and the risks. Like you need to actually understand what the people in the business need and that as good as the surveys and the focus groups are their moment in time they have to make take three months to process three months to get the exec to sponsor and what happened six months ago is almost ancient yeah. nowadays so we need to have almost an always on measurement and organizations that use laptops can say they use microsoft they can use analytics they can then overlay the work week data onto the attritional data and you can start to show across functions an increased work week of two hours results in a 0.6% increase in voluntary attrition cost in X. Okay, now this is something we need to deal about. This is the sort of level we need to get to. And I almost think we need to move, this is a pretty crazy thought, but past wellbeing teams, past D&I teams, so like human sustainability or like just people teams, not people and culture, not human resources, but a team that focuses on elevating people within a business taking a quantified approach involving IT and other functions. So it's cross-functional. And when you start to understand those things, you can actually dig into the things that have the greatest impact on the people within the business. And I, I was in a role called Workplace of the Future. I always focus on getting a sexy job title. It helps so much. <laughs> and uh, it was really fun. And we were able to do some amazing things because I sat across real estate, IT and people. And I was able to pull on the things that had the biggest impact. And we saved the business 24 million hours. So each person saved about five hours per week by focusing on essentially digital balance, using the tech in a better way to create space for what's important. This then knocked voluntary attrition down almost 10%, mm. saving the business millions. Wow. It's absolute business priority. It creates businesses that thrive and people 
that's why I've been in the business. And I think that was without putting on one event as well. Not how, that I'm saying you shouldn't do those things. How do you, like, someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, yeah, I need to start measuring. I need to start really understanding that nice acronym that you just shared. Like, how do they start doing that? Perhaps like meeting them where they are. Perhaps they've um, done some workshops. They're, they're, they're getting the idea that they've done some workshops. Yeah, it's the same people that turn up to the same things every time the next year comes around and there's not really much traction in the numbers. Where do they begin? It's tough because the people that hold the data are holding it because perhaps they don't want to share what's going on, right? Mm. And you're going to come up against resistance because this is a new way of thinking. And I see it time and time again, but you can actually use mostly external data to work it out. So you don't even need to do the inquiry within. I found that a few organizations, when I speak with people now, I try and work out what the costs are for them using publicly available data to go in and say, pow, now you want to have a conversation. It works so well. So you can find the volunteer attrition rate often in end of year reports for a certain size company. If not, you can find it for industries yeah. in the UK and you can probably do broader. So you can make some smart assumptions. You can find the average salary on Glassdoor. Again, you're going to be in a range like 20, 30% accurate, but regardless, it's going to be in a lot of money that people didn't realize before. Mm. You can then overlay, you can work out the, how long it takes to hire and retrain someone. You can, again, you can use assumptions or best practice given the industry. Then you can then overlay the increased cost of the salary taking just inflation at a base. Yeah. So if you times average salary by the average cost of hire and retrain, say 7.5 months, Plus the increase, the 10% or 5.9%, I think inflation was year on year times the salary times that by the voluntary attrition and then times that by 0.61, which is 61% of people, according to a Deloitte study, either left their job last year or planned to last next year due to poor well-being, lack of balance, stress, etc. You now have your well-being attritional figure. And regardless of this, anyone who employs more than 100 people, that's going to be a lot of money. Yeah. And it's going to be something that becomes a priority. That is just one small element of it. Yeah. And you can do that work yourself and then pop that in front of people. Oh, I'm really curious. So I had a look at this. I think this is what this is costing at the moment. Perhaps we should take a different approach. Yeah. And then by doing it that way, it moves broader than a HR issue and it becomes a CFO, it becomes a C suite priority. Yeah. Given everything that's gone at the moment, a tight labor market. It is just not a priority currently because we don't understand measurement yeah. as much as people feel it is and we want it to be and we do it with the best energy we need to do these things yeah i can't believe the statistic that only one to two percent of companies measure that that that's, blows my yeah. mind yeah we did a big piece of work last year and asked thirty thousand leaders in the uk so most are using surveys again best well in intent they're trying to ask the people what they want which is admirable but that's just one element of it you need primary secondary and tertiary data so you need nutritional your high level bits then you overlay that with engagement work week average holidays taken then you can start to create a view across functions and geographies who's working too hot what's the rationale for you can start digging into demographics as well oh okay so actually voluntary attrition for women is lower is that because perhaps they need to focus on keeping the medical benefits because they've got kids or a childcare policy? Does that mean they're actually not engaged? Yeah. And then you can start to do the inquiry. Then we do the focus groups and we can think, all right, what do we do together to actually create improvement for this cohort within the business? You pilot, you report back, you will then win the trust required to make broader scale change. 
that's what we did at that organization I worked before, including the IT function. I focused on little things and then we were able to do some big things as a result. So we did like the five, 10 minutes off of each meeting. And you auto schedule it. If you got six per week, you save 4.8 work weeks each year. You, just you, which is mad. And you think that's just that much time to stretch and move and breathe. We're pretty much houseplants with more complicated emotions. You just need, you just need a bit more sunlight and water, most of us. Yeah. So it's actually quite simple, which we've made often very complex. We've just got to create the space for it. And then, go ahead. Creating space is something that we are not good at generally being as a society, right? We're moving from one thing to the next. Life is fast paced. I'm, this I'm is- guilty. You're guilty of it. We're both, we love it, right? Because we love what we do, but... But, but like you said, starting small with five minutes off between meetings, right? Or chopping the end of a, a, a meeting by five minutes can make a world of difference. That small thing just creates so much more buffer time in between. Like you said, for somebody to just breathe. And it seems so simple and it seems like such a no-brainer. Was there any resistance when you started to implement that with companies? Not, not, not that little one, no. And we focus on... Um... I, everything I did, I focused on engagement and I was like, oh, we'll do a little competition on the back end. What's the optimum five minute refresher? And we got everyone to share videos and content. I replayed that content then in all newsletters across the business, continue to play that out. So people were then starting to see the behavior you want to see. And I said, leadership, I want to see you doing this first and foremost. Yes. If you don't, I'm going to come down you like a ton of bricks. I'm going to publicly shame you. <laughs> but I made it fun and then replayed this content. I always leave little Amazon vouchers because people will do anything for 25 quid. I swear. <laughs> but, like, and then we replayed this stuff on LinkedIn, creating the employee value proposition. Most of your people in your business in five years don't currently work there now. So yeah. you've got to start playing this stuff out externally. Mm. According to um, the Indeed, the world's largest wellbeing study ever done with 18 million individuals contributing, people think that conversations could be the number one driver. It's not. It's, having a, it's being energized when you come to work. Second is trust and third is belonging. So we need to show that we're an organization that gives you the space to do what you need to be energized, that we have a culture where you belong and you're part of a group of people who are aligned. And I think by playing this like natural content out there, you start to create and pull the right people in, which is especially important given the market and the fact that most organizations are really struggling to give pay rise and compete just on price. Yeah. So by doing this, we were able to in- increase LinkedIn followers by 40%. Doubled internal engagement, and I said reduced attrition as well, and reduced the work week, reduced meetings by 20% for everyone in the business as well. And by constantly reporting back on this data that I saw, I was then trusted, but then we did a right to disconnect policy. So I said, all right, 26% of our global employees are currently covered by legislation. Let's get ahead of this. Let's do this globally. Let's make a bit of noise about it. And it's something in the word and here we work flexibly. We're not expected to work after work hours when sick or on holiday, but you can if you choose, because there are times that you will want to. Yeah. But we're the sort of organization that prioritizes that stuff. We then did a four and a half day work week trial in Dubai. I was told, no way will we do that here, Ryan. Mm-mm, nope. A full day kept coming up on your hands. And when are we doing this? They're like, no. So when Dubai shifted their weekend, so if you remember, yeah. Well, you would know, right? Yeah. I said, well, we need to actually give people Friday afternoon off for essentially religious inclusion purposes. So I used the DNI angle and I said, to do this, we can't just do it for people that have prayers. We've also got to do it for parents who are picking up kids when school's closed. All right, cool, we'll do it. I capture all the data reported back, massive success. Oh, okay, well, maybe we should consider this a bit broader. 
So sometimes you've got to take a different tact and go in, but constantly keeping that measurement approach that really, really helped. Yeah, you have to, I think. Otherwise, how do you really know if something's working? How do you really know, you know? So exactly. with the four and a half day work weeks, is it not just squeezing more into less time and adding more pressure? So I know the team there and they are doing some incredible work. And I think it's one of many tools in the future of work, well-being arsenal. And we need to focus on looking for geographic flexibility. That's your hybrids. Temporal flexibility, one tool of which is your four day work week and then modal flexibility and neurodiverse individuals to work in a way that suits them. Might not shock you, I'm neurodiverse, but I've got dyslexia, dyspraxia, I've got ADHD, I get excited, I interrupt people. and So this is the future of work, we're coupled with a sense of belonging that we want to move to. So it's just one of the many things that we can do, but we see massive plaudits, overwhelming success, I've yet to see a large, large global organization do it. I think it's a privilege of people that work with laptops. I don't think it's going to be afforded to people who grind out widgets. It's more easy to record. I think it has a real option to change the way in which people consider work. We did. We couldn't even consider to work in uh, five days a week during the industrial revolution. And that was a novel concept to give people a weekend, wasn't it? They only used to have Sundays off yeah. and Saturdays were seen as absolute sacrilege. It just takes a few brave people to step forward and say, no, this is the way we work. But there was a serious amount of pressure and pushback on it. Mm. A lot of it is squeezed compressed hours. Uh, I read in the FT recently that in Belgium, essentially they did it uh, for a lot of their government employees. What they did was they did five days in four. So it was just compressed hours. It's not a four day work week whatsoever. And is that going to work for parents? Yeah. I, I think it's possibly worse. Yeah. And then in the UK organizations that have done it, they worked out it was actually 4.5 days squeezed into four. So it's not so much four as opposed to compressed. Yeah. But I think that it would be, it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. And if organizations can say, this is how we work here. We focus on outcomes. And if you deliver what you want, you work truly flexible. Yeah. Incredible. That's going to be a place that people want to work, but that you've got to have one hella sense of psychological safety. I think in a business to get that done, but I'd love to see it. Yeah. If we kept going the way that we are now, based on the statistics, where are we going to be in like, let's say 2030? And then same question for like 2050. If we keep going the way we are now, not what you want to see. <laughs> okay. Nothing changes. So I, I actually did this in my uh, TED talk. So I, I walked through time and shared my story that I shared so flippantly earlier um, and how essentially over time there was an increase there's been an increase in the UK and use of antidepressants I don't think that's the perfect measure of an increase in depression and anxiety because it might be because of an increased awareness and remove stigma that people feel comfortable but it's the metric we have over time regardless people are struggling and since 2010 to 2022 that's increased by 70 percent in the UK antidepressant use so partly i think will be reducing of stigma but in equally there's a lot of people that are struggling yeah and if we continue to increase at that rate in 2034 we'll have over 200 in the uk taking antidepressants out of every thousand so one one every five which is a monumental amount of people just think of your family and the people around you and your small circles that's a lot of people who are really struggling So there is the data we can work out. So currently one in four, uh, I think it's about 24% are currently showing signs of anxiety or depression in the UK. 
if we continue at the current rate of increase, it'll be one in three in 2034. Again, is that because of reduced stigma, potentially, partially? But regardless, that is a lot of people really, really struggling. Yeah. And workplaces have a huge part to play in that. And I think if they just focus on creating work that's good for people, moving to a place where we can focus on outcomes, temporal flexibility, geographic flexibility where possible, coupled with a sense of belonging, yeah. I think they're going well on the way. But I can't see how we're going to make whole scale improvements very quickly and it's going to be tough but I think that's why we've got to roll our sleeves up and get involved and help as many people as we can exactly exactly and there's so many great minds working on it from so many different angles and that's one of the things I love about this this industry and where, where we are now because like we know so much more than we used to I know you've always said that sometimes that's part of the problem sometimes we know too much Therefore, we talk about it too much. <laughs> and therefore, that can be part Two of the Two sides of the coin, yeah. <laughs> yeah right, yeah. so it is. It's this, like, competing, like, conflicts and paradoxes and paradigm shifts that need to happen. But they're all so important to talk about so that we can consider where, where are we starting. So anyone listening to this can be like, okay, well, where are we right now? What what do we believe, one, about well-being in the first place and where we are, where we are what we're offering, how we're thinking about it? It's a starting point. So give us the other side of the coin. Okay, I've got a cool case study. So recently BT said that I think it was 500 million jobs were at risk for white collar workers with regards to Gen AI. And you think immediately like, damn, like this, this is going to be whole scale change, the like of which we haven't seen in a very, very, very long time. Yeah. And it's quite a worrying statistic they said at first that automation and the new gen AI would replace the repetitive jobs but we're actually seeing it's replacing the creative jobs with the script writers walkout and stuff that we're seeing in the states at the moment and the journalists and stuff are pushing back as well because a lot of the first drafts and stuff are being auto generated so it's actually the opposite of what we're expecting to see and it paints a pretty bleak picture but then if you bear in mind that the average they said that in the legal profession it's potentially even worse because a lot of the you know, the crawling through reports, precedents, case law, et cetera, et cetera. They said that 44% of all tasks within the legal profession could be automated by Gen AI. So you think then that it's gonna reduce the need for junior colleagues who do a lot of the, the manual work, right? Who do the grunt work for the seniors to go and present the case. You can tell I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> so, sorry for the butchering of the language for anyone, the legal profession on the call. <laughs> but um, so, that opens up two potentialities, isn't it? So the average work week in London for some of the legal press is about 60 hours. So that is a long time, long, long, long time, long hours, traditionally known that they burn through people pretty quick. Like it's an industry that has a very high rate of suicide, a very high rate of burnout. And I imagine a lot of those people are the ones struggling that we were speaking about a minute ago. But if you replied to apply a 44% reduction in the work week to a 60 hour work week, you'd almost end up with a 34 hour one. And you could essentially have a four day work week for someone in the legal profession. Could you imagine 10 years ago, considering a solicitor or a lawyer could do four days a week? Yeah. Or focus on a place, work in a place where they can focus on outcomes and quality deliverables. They move away from measuring time with clients on hours and they move to outcomes, products, piece of work. Yeah. That is a law firm that people would want to join. That is the future of work that enables people to work and prioritize what they need. Mm -hmm. There will be the other side of the coin and those organizations that focus on sheer cost reduction and getting rid of heads. 
but what is the law firm that you want to work with? The one that has the best talent, the people that are rested, that be able to be creative, to focus on quality for clients, or those that are still working at 100%. So I think it's that 85%, wasn't it Greg McKeown of uh, Essentialism says, like, we should try to work for 85%, we'd be able to go for longer. Yeah. I think that's the sort of journey that a lot of organizations are gonna go on, and that's the future of work that I wanna work in. Nice. What other ways do you see the future of well-being looking like? You've already shared so many like points on, you know, less less is more essentially, and as focusing on um, the things that really matter, right? Like the outcomes versus something else. How does somebody practically start to shift that within their organisation now? we speak about paradigms they're almost paradigms and paradoxes like buses right you talk about one and then another one comes along <laughs> you can wait all day for it, and then they come in quick succession i think just the quick wins uh the difference between 1.0 and 2.0 the key thing is depending where you are on the journey if you got to awareness is 1.0 is where it's the absolute focus the priority whereas 2.0 is where it's the outcome and i think that's the quickest like shift that we can get on you think okay so we're talking about it until we're blue in the face, we put on another webinar or potentially could we consider doing something a bit differently to get to a place of well-being as an outcome? How can we think about something that's a bit novel? I actually did this with um, a company previously. We were in a room thinking about what can we do to help create some digital balance? Because tech is the issue, but also the answer for a lot of us, if we can figure it properly. Yeah. I actually think there's no such thing as work-life balance. I think it's boundaries first for most of us. If you look for balance, work is always louder and always mm. overshadow life. Yeah. Boundaries first, then you can get balance. Yeah. So we were thinking about this, how can we help? And we come up with the in-office, out-of-office. So if you're in the office, put your out-of-office on and let people know there's going to be a delay in your online correspondence and that you'll be back in the virtual office tomorrow, creating space for connection. Because mm. we're in some next-gen hell where we come to, when we commute into the office and we're sitting on laptops. So for a lot of us, those novel little things can have a big impact. And I think that's where you want to take this. You want to break out the confines of what people see the well-being role is and start to do something a bit differently mm. and report and have some fun with it. A lot of the conversation in this area is like a bifurcation of the language. You almost have to be completely burnt out to even have a discussion. I think that's rubbish. It says I saw a stat recently that 87% of people in the US are showing showing signs of burnout. It's a, like, really? Yeah. Can they not just tired or stressed or angry and just being a human? Like, that's absolutely fine. And I think by moving away from the focus and the absolute crisisness of it and just having an engaging conversation and doing those things and working with purpose will enable us to talk about it on the regular. Yeah. And I would just love to see that. It's fascinating to me, like, because you're right, because like all, all of the stats, there was one um, survey done here at the start of this year by Cigna, which is 98% of uae people were experiencing at least one symptom of burnout um and it, it's not the only one you know there, there's so many and it's the focus is it is on the crisis you're right and when we look at what well-being is it's about being well right we're not we're, 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 talk, we're talking about ill being currently exactly Ex yeah exactly it's, we want to look for the opposite we want to look for wellness instead of illness we're treating illness we're not anywhere near wellness exactly what's your view on the difference between wellness and well-being because there's a massive like I think confusion 
within organizations that are well-intentioned and trying to do something and they're not perhaps seeing the differences so i actually did some research on this and did a post that went fairly viral and i got loads of hate i got a problem of people swearing at me calling me all sorts of names saying why does it matter like all this this soft fluffy snowflake shit and i was like okay mad like absolutely mad honestly i've never had so much hate and i was like the language totally matters that you use yeah in everything in inclusive dialogue and work it all matters and i think so yeah, it was really interesting. I got a lot of grief for it, but it was, I said that the wellness industry, so you talk about the industries first, it's much larger. It's worth 1.4 trillion. And that includes a hot stone massage and podiatry. Well-being is often seen as much smaller, but it's actually a broader thing in itself. So the industries are very different from that perspective. In organizational well-being is workplace apps. Wellness is much broader and that includes gym memberships and stuff like that. The terms themselves, wellness is about a positive state of physical and mental health. Well-being is much broader and it's essentially one satisfaction with their life, which incorporates relationships, social bonds, and that's just as an individual. So you can see the difference there. So the health, good health is one element of a broader sense of well-being. Yeah. So you need wellness to have a sense of well-being, yeah. I think. And then broader than that, as an organization, like we said, we actually look at the, how the work is designed to create an organizational well-being strategy. Because we often see the strategy being mental, physical, emotional, social. That means that you're just looking at the individual. Yeah. Whereas we want to see work, experience, financial, yeah. lifestyle, and then health last. Yeah. So there are the differences. So I think wellness industry, much bigger, well-being, teeny tiny compared. Yeah. well-being much bigger wellness as a concept smaller as a larger part of it yeah and there's this constant dance between the two of them that organizations have to learn to to not manage but to navigate because like you you can be a really well individual pick, pick them up and put them in a place that's quite toxic and you know there's that suffering is going to occur and they're not going to get the business outcomes that they want so i think and that's where it's tricky right now because you've got organizations that are perhaps not treating employees as well as they could and yet they're trying to get them to go and do a mental health webinar right it's like it just doesn't add up it doesn't doesn't make any sense for them, the individual to be engaged at all but yet that's still the approach that we constantly see is it and i i've thought about this a few times recently the way you played back what i was saying is that i talk about space and I think that's a lot, but I don't think that's all of the organizational well-being thing because we're busy. Yeah. We live in the Western world, we want to work, we want to succeed, which is why you're listening to this because you want to perform. And it's often about finding meaning in the performance, having a strong why and a sense of connection to the work or what you do. And I think that's a huge part of it as well. So it's creating the space for what's important around the work and it's creating work that's actually good for people and where they can actually draw something from it and come out net positive rather than reduce. Yeah. I would love to finish the day and actually feel more energized than when I started. Yeah. There are certain days when I do feel like that and they're few and far between and I'm changing my career to move towards those to make that more what I do. Yeah. And we can all feel that in like inside ourselves and you finish some days and you're like screw this if i've got face in a spreadsheet all day i am the worst human on the face of the earth once i'm done <laughs> but honestly i'm absolutely foul if i have a day when i'm around people and i get to do like talk about these things i come and talk to you and i've got a lunch and I, it's a great day and i'm going to finish 
better off and I'm going to the theatre this evening with my girlfriend, I'm going to be in a good mood, which I'm sure she would be very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> but we need to actively ask ourselves, what do we get purpose from in that space and start to carve that out? And when we get really critical on what we need to be our best self, what we need to thrive, and we actually ask those questions we rarely bloody do because we're too busy being head down, we can actually start to move towards what gives us energy as we work. And as we know, that's the number one driver of well-being. Yeah. And ultimately, what is more important than one's satisfaction with their life? Yeah. That's it. That's that's all. That's the be all and end all. Yeah. That's why so, I love your um, perspective on an organization's role isn't to try and fix people. One, because they're, they're, they're not broken, essentially, but also because you know their, their role is to just not make it any worse it's up it is partly up to the um well it is up to the individual to make sure that they are paying attention to what's important to them that's what i believe um but it is also up to the people that they surround themselves by to not make it any worse the, you, you most of the time you don't stay in a relationship that is trying to fix you most people would leave straight away this is a and um, we we've done it because we want to help and they're well intentioned and everything else is good and we have to be seen to be doing this as organizations on socials to be yep. doing the right awareness and again i, I don't think we should stop that yep. i think we need to supplement it and move beyond yeah that's that yep. and when we do we'll get to a space and people take ownership because you take the horse and it, it is that simple i think it's the right thing to do to catch people when they fall, to give them the support, to help people. If the work has made them sick too bloody right, we should help people if we make them ill and help them back to work because each person is an individual with their own life and things going on. And I think it's the right thing to do, but that's just one element of a strategy rather than it in its entirety. Yeah. I'd say it's the last element, last element, the health element. We've got everything else before yeah. and we consider the modal flexibility, the geographic, a good hybrid strategy. Yeah. I so said, I wrote something today. It's quite funny. You'll like this. You had a coffee badging. Coffee badging? No, tell me. And the, a, a, are you a coffee badger, do you reckon? Uh, well, I don't drink coffee, so probably not. <laughs> <It's> so, <laughs> I can guarantee it's, my husband is. <laughs> it's, a, it's the open revolt against the return to the office. So people, 58% of hybrid workers are said to be doing it. And they're meant to, so they're, they're mandated to go in, they tap in, they grab a coffee, they walk around very loudly, say hello to everyone, they tap back out and they go home. And this is what we're seeing play out. And like, this is where we should be focusing our efforts on getting that right. We get that right. You enable parents to focus on picking their kids up and focus on their work, get a sense of meaning. You give people a space to stretch in between meetings. You come together for the benefit, for the belonging, the connection, the creativity, the culture, the collaboration, the community, I think seeds. And then you stay home for the heads down work. And this, for me, this is where we want to be looking. And we look at all this stuff and that creates a workplace but I can prioritize what I need to be my best self and you can do the same. And then we give people the tools to work out what that is, to find the work that gives them the opportunities to do that. And I think that next year there'll be an opportunity to shape work for the better for a lot of us with developments in the tech. There'll be a lot of people, as I said, who do go the other way, but I hope to influence the people that want to do it positively yeah. and create the space and equally the meaningful work that gives people a sense of that brings leaves people better off after the work day than when they started. Imagine. So, I don't know how quickly do you think we could do that. Is that a, in twenty thirty? Could we? Do you think we could start to see that like across across the board? I know it's not always going to be every company, of course. Um, but as a result, well, do you think it's going to take a bit longer? 
Well, so in Jan 23, is a big book coming out, isn't there? Uh, 52 Weeks of Wellbeing and No Free Nonsense story. Guide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> self, hashtag self-promo. Um. <laughs> I, I, I mentioned it in your intro. And it, it's, I'm glad that you're plugging it right now because a no-nonsense guide you know, to well-being, I think is necessary and needed. I think we all need to be told sometimes. How many books have you read and you're like, I knew that, but why did I need to read it and hear it in that way for it's the light bulb to actually go on? I've got, I'm sensing this is going to be the vibe of your book. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Work, helping each individual to work out what they need to be yeah. their best self. No prescriptive advice, none offered. Yeah. Rather giving you the opportunity to work out what it is on that specific topic that you need to prioritize to create some space and then find a bit of meaning in what you do and then get energy outside of that. And it's been so much fun to do. So that's going to be amazing. Obviously, that's not going to change the world of work. But it might help a few people and it's been really fun. Um, but it's going to be a lifelong thing for me. I want to engage a billion people in the betterment of well-being. I want to help people not end up where I did. And then if they do, to know that there is another choice and that they're not a freak, that there's nothing wrong with them. They're absolutely perfect the way they are. That there's no battle, no bigger battle than the one they're fighting in your own head. And the fact that you're still here and you're still plugging away is speaks to how strong you are and what you're doing. I want to help people at work around the world to feel that. And I will engage a billion people in this. So it's a lifelong thing. You've got people like Richard Laird, Lord Richard Laird, who set up all the uh, statistics, the Office of National Statistics, the measurement of well-being. The Labour government have said they get into power, they'll use that as the number one decision metric and anything that's done for the populace, the satisfaction of one, ones with one's own life, the well-being of the population. That's what Thomas Jefferson said was the actual, the goal of any government originally. And for me, he is, I think Richard Laird is 87 and he was at a conference last year speaking on stage about the Como Manifesto and building this into, and like measuring well, but he says, if you treasure it, you measure it. And he's still going. And I hope that when I'm 87, that I'll still be doing the same and I'll reflect back on the big changes. I think it's going to take a long time. They'll be slow and there'll be those that resist. And there'll be organizations that pass because they haven't looked after their people. And we'll see it time and time again, those toxic cultures and places that fail when all the back in 2008, 2009, I think there'll be those that thrive and hopefully they'll set the light out for other businesses to do it properly. And then hopefully people will continue to share their story and create the employee value proposition on socials. And I think it will just play out more and more. And those sorts of bad cultures are not tolerated like they once were. Yeah. And I hope that the advocacy continues. Millennials and Gen Z's get a real bad rap, but they're the ones that are going to write about your business. They're the ones that are going to give you reviews. They're the ones that are going to be doing bits on LinkedIn, TikTok and other. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited. I rambled a bit, but yeah, I'll, I'll be 87 reflecting back on a life filled with positive influence, I hope, but I know it's going to be a long time. Well, you're already making a massive dent into that mission. And I, I am looking forward to having you back on the show when you're 87. If you're still going in 65 years, that'll be the longest podcast in history. I don't even <laughs> think Joe Rogan will be going that long. So that'll be amazing. They do say that though, right? It's like, just, just stick it out. Be the, the one person that, that just keeps on going. It's the biggest thing for me with stepping up and trying to be a lead in this space. I said... Four years ago, when I left Deloitte the first time, um, and I went to lead while being at Sainsbury's Tech. I said, you want to be a leader in this space, you've got to start talking, fella. You've got to start turning up. And I started posting a couple of times a week. 
And I really started ramping that up. And now I'm engaging up to between 100,000, a quarter of a million people a week in this, with this stuff and having a bit of fun with it. It's good you just keep plugging away. You keep turning up for long enough with good energy and don't be an arsehole. <laughs> then the rest takes care of itself. Like, have fun, share your stuff when you feel comfortable, have an adventurous mind, try things, fail, share that openly, and together we'll keep moving it forwards. I'm not going to get it right all the time. Neither is anyone, but I'll, I'll keep turning up. Yeah. And no one does. And, and that's the difference, I think, between the future of well-being, particularly in workplaces, is the people that, like you've said, are willing to take risks, willing to try and fail and try again until they figure out what does work. I think they're the ones that are going to have the organisations that people are drawn to because they're 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 being authentic. They're being uh, vulnerable. They're, they're showing what's worked. They're showing what hasn't worked. And then that means that they're listening. They're, exactly. they're responding to that. And that's the only way we, we grow and the only way we do better, particularly as an industry as well. The key is data and anecdotes. Take a data-led approach and have yeah. take it so Yeah. Amazing. Listen, I could talk to you all day long on this topic and go King, just keep on going down the rabbit hole with you. Um, <laughs> but tell us, before we um, wrap up, the global goal that you've chosen to support with the listens that are going to be, uh, the donations that are going to be made based on the listens to this episode is obviously towards good health and well-being for you and I think you've kind of already answered the question as to why it's so important to you is there anything you'd add as to why that's such an important goal and why this is essentially your mission uh, beyond what I said I just honestly being where I was and some of the pain I see people around me in loved ones friends lives that have gone as I said, there's no tougher battle than the one you fight in your own head. Yeah. And I think if we can help a pe few people through that, I don't think there's anything greater. That's it. Helping one person might not change the world, but it might change the world for that one person. So that's that's the intention. And we keep turning up and telling stories. And if you and I keep having a laugh and trying to share our journey, then hopefully a few other people will feel comfortable to do the same when they're good and ready. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today and your experiences and your data and your anecdotes. Um, I think you're you're definitely going to be provoking a lot of thinking for our listeners, um, particularly in and around the way they're measuring, but also the 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 less is more approach. I think that's attractive, you know, to, to for a business owner listening to this or C suites that are listening to this, and they're like, oh, so you're telling me that I don't have to keep worrying about these massive events and this workshop over here and who I need to bring in for that. And we actually just, you know, go like you mentioned to that essentialism mindset and look at, okay, what are the things that are going to move the needle the most that sometimes actually require the least effort? Well, that's a no brainer, right? That's what I'm saying. Exactly. <laughs> amazing thank you so so much ryan for being on the show where can our listeners come and find and follow your work i'm going to put the link to your book and to your ted talk um into the show notes but is there anywhere else i know you're very active on linkedin as well yeah hit me up on linkedin if you have any feedback on this good bad ugly or indifferent please let me know always welcome <laughs> um and i'm on um future of well-being on instagram and tiktok for the for the hip and cool ones amongst us i'm still still working out and i'm actually <clears throat> starting a role new role in a week so when this goes live i'll be the chief impact officer at jack just to ask a question a new innovative mental health platform changing the world of mental health one question at a time so go have a look at that 
um, exciting things to follow. Maybe I'll come back and we can talk about that. 100%. I've already had a little nose um, at that platform and I love it already. Everything about it's cool, that. right? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's modern. It's, <clears throat> it's a, just a, a new way of thinking about mental health and showcasing, like, the, I think some of the elements that need it the most so i'm really curious to see where that goes and i think um, yeah, drum roll we'll go we'll get we'll get into that one if you want me back we'll see for sure for sure we do 100 amazing thank you so so much ryan and we'll see you again on the next episode then when we come and speak to you about jack was well, that one i'm 87 or next year We've got, we've got two more planned, hope, haven't we? Hopefully Jack's going to be um, <laughs> ready and willing before you're on, Kevin. That's just like a small rung on your ladder. <laughs> All right, cool. Thank you. Today's episode was hosted by myself, Charlotte Stebbing-Mills, the co-founder of The Wellness Theory. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and share with someone who may benefit and be part of our mission to help people realise when they're healthy and well, they can be a force for good in the world. I just wanted to share some more about our partner, B1G1. B1G1 is a global movement that enables businesses to incorporate effective impact creation into their everyday activities in a simple and powerful way. Through B1G1, businesses can choose from a wide range of verified projects around the world and integrate these impacts into their business operations. The core concept of B1G1 is that every business transaction or interaction can be directly linked to making a positive impact in our world. Whether it's providing access to clean water, supporting education, planting trees or addressing social issues, B1G1 enables businesses of all types to make a real difference. To find out more about them, visit their website at b1g1.com. Until next time, be well, mean well, and make a difference that lasts. See you in the next episode.